Scott Galloway is a professor at NYU Business School where he teaches brand strategy, digital marketing, was named one of the world's 50 best business school professors. He's also the founder of like something like nine companies um, and the author of two books, the first of which was a New York Times bestseller and the latest of which, The Algebra of Happiness, is just out and is a, a fun, provocative take on what really matters in life and what is also, in his mind, an utter waste of time. All of this accomplishment, not bad from a guy who grew up a kind of self-described slacker in Southern California and kind of begged his way into graduating from UCLA with a sterling 2.27 GPA. So in today's conversation, we dive into how Scott's upbringing, how being raised by a mom who was a fierce champion for him, made so many things possible, how he built a life of what kind of seemed like astonishing external success felt and looked like while he was simultaneously crumbling inside and then blowing up everything that got him to this place of perceived success and rebuilding life on a profoundly different set of values and expectations and measurements in his second act. And of course, along the way, we touch on some of the ideas from his new book, The Algebra of Happiness, that will without a doubt provoke you to think differently about what a life well-lived is and how to get there. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is sponsored by the ADHD AHA podcast hosted by Laura Key. So I've been kind of amazed at how many conversations I've had lately with people later in life who are wondering if they have ADHD. It can be hard to understand what ADHD is by looking at a list of symptoms. So in each episode of ADHD AHA, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected, emotional, even funny ways that ADHD symptoms surface for adults. Like the recent episode with ADHD coach Emily Weinberg, which really resonated with me. Her story about how she was thinking she was, quote, just lazy before her diagnosis because she wasn't hyperactive really struck a chord. Her feeling frozen and stuck ruminating on mounting to-do lists is just so relatable for so many people. It's really validating to hear others articulate those experiences. Each episode of ADHD AHA features candid tales of realizing that your loved one has ADHD. You'll hear the unexpected, emotional ways that it manifests in adults through heartfelt interviews. ADHD AHA 
captures the authentic human experience of ADHD. So if you want a fresh personal perspective that embraces the messiness, listen to ADHD AHA. Search for ADHD AHA in your podcast app. That's ADHD AHA with AHA spelled A-H-A. It's an AHA moment you won't miss. You know, I describe my childhood and, and, my, and me as, a, as a unremarkably or remarkably unremarkable. You know, just latchkey kid, single, single mom, only child, nothing that exceptional, nothing, just kind of sleepwalking through life. Nah. Did you feel like that when you were a kid or, or looking back on it, do you, is that sort of like your assessment of what was going on? You know, you just, I think you're a kid, you just don't know any different. Um, you know, the defining moments for me were my parents' divorce, uh, growing up with a single mom, but it was the 70s. You know, I think we're about the same age. There yeah. was just a different approach to kids. Make sure that they're fed, make sure they're home by like midnight, and that's about it. Yeah. It wasn't anything like what we're doing now. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I remember in the summers um, going out to play kick the can and <laughs> literally like that was the game we'd all play. In the middle of the street. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Until all hours of the night yeah. until, you know, somewhere like a, a chain of parents calling each other finally found where the crowd right, was. Right. And, like, we all went running home. Yeah. No, yeah. Right. Totally different. I mean, cause you're raising two kids now, right? Yeah. Two, two boys, eight and 11. And it's just such a such a contrast, right? Just uh, so involved in their lives. And there's something actually kind of relaxing when I was single and on the weekend would come, it wasn't stressful, but it'd be like, all right, what's the most fabulous, interesting series of things I can do this weekend? And then when you have kids, you have kids, right? Yeah. It's sort of your life is just, well, we know what we're doing. We're doing what the kids, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're doing Little League and then we're doing a play date and then we're watching, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, Shazam on Saturday night. But it's kind of, it's not nearly as much fun, but, or I shouldn't say it's not as much fun. It's not as fabulous, but it's sort of relaxing, right? You just kind of know what you're doing this weekend. Yeah. Well, I guess that's why a lot of people turn to religion, right? They're, they're sort of like, these are the rules of the game. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the decisions are Structure. made for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's right. So um, you mentioned your kids were, your, your parents were immigrants. where they come from? Uh, dad, Scotland, mother, England, both, you know, neither of them uh, got past eighth grade, um, pretty impoverished households and, you know, have this great gene uh, that we've inherited. And I think it's the secret sauce in America is this kind of risk-taking immigrant gene. And they said, we want better lives. And uh, both came here on a steamship uh, in the uh, uh, late 50s. With their families, I'm assuming? No, just them. Just, oh, no kidding. Yeah, and they met, they actually met at a dance. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's just... How old were they when they came? I think they were in their, I think that, uh, mid to late 20s. So yeah. young. Yeah, kids, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, people, uh, I, I think when they see, I'm, you know, when they see some 6'2 bald white guy wearing a blazer, they assume that I'm fifth generation, you know, Mayflower <laughs> or something. I'm like, no, I'm an immigrant. Was that or kids I mean, of immigrants? Because there was a sort of the, the classic Im immigrant mentality, sort of like a part of your upbringing, also about it's like work ethic or a focus on certain trajectories or career paths or education. You know, I, I think I've always had a um, a sense of, you know, for me it was about my parents were were risk takers. They worked hard. They didn't have the benefit of education. And for me, it's always struck me the con the contrast in the opportunities they had and the opportunities I had. And it wasn't necessarily because I was raised in this wonderful environment. It was because I was born in the best zip code in the world. To be born in California in the 60s as a um, heterosexual white male, and I'll come back to why that, that was literally a, the winning lottery ticket. Because uh, through the 60s and 70s, America basically had a monop monopoly power. 
you know, the, the best or most productive economies in the world, Germany and Japan, had been leveled. And in World War II, third largest economy in the world was Argentina. So we basically had monopoly power for a good 30, 40 years. So if you were a white guy in corporate America, you could do really well. And where I, when I grew up in California, the, the University of California, which is, you know, seminal in my life, decided it wanted unremarkable kids and give them remarkable opportunities. So I got into UCLA with, a, I was, uh, you asked me about my childhood, I was um, mediocre in terms of grades, but I didn't test well either. <laughs> I just wasn't kind of, but the UCLA was looking for kids who were unremarkable to make them remarkable is the way I would describe it. And then I rewarded the vision and the generosity of the Regents of UC and California taxpayers with a 2.27 GPA to UCLA. And then somehow I got into graduate school at Berkeley. Uh, but yeah, I've always said the difference, my my parents uh, were harder working and I think more talented than me. But the reason, you know, I'm here with you and I've had, uh, I've had this kind of, you know, a lot of economic security in my life, which my parents never had, is because uh, two two reasons. One, the irrational passion that my mother had for me and two, the University of California, you know, being born in a place with state-sponsored education and in a, in a society that values risk takers and values hard work, gives you a ton of opportunity. And the reason I brought in kind of the white heterosexual male part of this, and I write about this in the book, is my roommate my freshman year uh, was a white male who was homosexual. And to be born in the 60s as a white homosexual male was literally the unluckiest thing in the world. Because if he'd been born probably in the 50s, he probably would have um, found a monogamous relationship. If he'd been born in the 70s, the AIDS cocktail would have caught him. But unfortunately, he was born at just the wrong time. And that is he he began, you know, having a series of relationships in his 20s and then contracted HIV and science didn't catch him fast enough. And I always thought, same guy, same fraternity, same college. I was the luckiest guy in the world, literally, that my timing couldn't have been better and his timing just couldn't have been worse. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting also because it really does bring up the the notion of how many things end up dropping into our path that have profound impacts yeah. on every part of our, our existence that we have literally zero control over and can claim, you know, like zero um, responsibility for. <laughs> 100%. And it's you, as a species, we're so good at crediting our character and our hard work for our success. And then we credit the markets for our failures. Mm. And the reality is I, I don't have any such delusions. You know, I don't, if I was born even in China and Europe, which are, you know, productive, interesting societies, I've started nine businesses. Generously, I'm kind of three, four, and two. I don't know if any other society would tolerate the failures I've had and still let me get to where I am now. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, you know, go go USA. And, that, and um, that's one of the things that's so disturbing about some of the rhetoric right now around anti-immigrant, you know, being literally demonizing immigrants because if it hadn't been the kind of the warm, the warm embrace of the U.S. for my parents, and if it hadn't been for, I'm also really rattled by this education scandal and I'm part of the problem because as academics, I teach at NYU, we're kind of drunk on exclusivity. Every year we brag about how impossible it is to get into school. And uh, you hear people at parties say, well, I could never get into the school I went to now, and they say that with pride, and it's a bad thing because, on a risk-adjusted basis, your kids may be a little bit better than you, but they may be a little bit worse. But they're probably going to be kind of similar to you in terms of intellect, work ethic, uh, 
And if they can't get into the school you got into, which is kind of the caste system in the US, we have a caste system, it's higher education here, then they're not gonna do as well as you. So uh, something that I find you know, profoundly disturbing is that the kids who used to have remarkable opportunities to go to remarkable schools now go to good schools. And the kids that go to, used to go to good schools go to average schools because while the number of applicants to Stanford has tripled in the last 30 years, they haven't increased their seats by one because we all as academics love being a luxury brand and we've kind of lost the script. We forget that we're public servants. Yeah. I mean, I guess what's the answer to that though? I know, <laughs> I know it's a really big complicated uh, yeah. issue, but I'm actually really curious because you've been living you know, like a solid chunk of your recent adult life yeah. in, inside of that yeah. world um, and kind of speaking out. Yeah. Um, what Do you see a clear path to a different way? Well, it, there's a lot of things. It's it's obviously a nuanced and complicated problems. And, and some of the some of the reasons it's getting harder to get into good schools are there's good things going on. There's more and more girls going to college. The number of girls that are going to college has increased exponentially. 70% of high school valedictorians are girls. And that's a great thing. More kids going to college. You know, these are all good things. Some of the things that I think we could do that would increase the supply, and that really is the problem. It's a supply side problem is I believe we should start taxing endowments over a billion dollars if they don't grow the number of seats they have faster than the population growth. So mm. the head of admissions for Harvard last year said that we could have doubled the freshman income, incoming freshman class and not sacrificed any quality. Based and, on the size of their endowment. Well, uh, not even distinct to the endowment. They've said that the number of applications we got, we could have doubled the number of admittees okay. and not sacrificed any quality. Right. And my viewpoint is with a $38 billion endowment, well then do it. And so the notion that you sit on $38 billion, if you're not growing your public service faster than you are your, endow your endowment, you're not a nonprofit, you're a private enterprise and you should be taxed. Uh, I think tenure is essentially an incredibly uh, uh, rapacious tax on young people. And that is uh, the basis of tenure is really noble and that is Galileo. Like you wanna protect Scientists and academics, when they say the world is not flat, you don't want them burnt into stake, right? So the pursuit of truth and protections are wonderful in terms of the initial notion. What it's turned into is uh, an extraordinarily expensive union that lacks the artisanship and that lacks the kind of commitment to quality. And what we have is uh, social services for the undereducated, food stamps and welfare and unemployment insurance. And we now have welfare for the overeducated and it's called tenure at universities. And tenure it just translates into debt on young people. And young people are coming out of school now with so much debt. And I think to a certain extent, a lot of us in the academic or the college system prey on the hopes and dreams of middle-class families and convince them to take on massive amounts of debt. So people who, in my opinion, verge on or are full, you know, fully in the circle of incompetence so they can maintain what I would say are ridiculous salaries and job security. And that's tenure, it's lifetime employment. When a university awards tenure, it typically has to put two to $5 million aside in reserve because basically what they're saying is we know this person's about to become unproductive for 30 or 40 years. So get rid of tenure, uh, ta start taxing endowments unless you increase the number of seats at the school. I think we need some sort of Marshall plan where we work with the states to build fantastic public universities. University of North Carolina does a great job. Um, the majority of their kids are from the state. Also, and this sounds yeah, uh, politically 
you know, incorrect, but I think that um, we need to focus on more middle-class kids from the U.S. We let in a lot of foreign students under the auspices of diversity. We don't let them in for diversity. We let them in because they pull full freight. They pay full freight, excuse me. So there's a, the fastest way to increase your kid's likelihood of getting into a college is there's a box in every application you can check that says, I will not pursue financial aid of any source. You check that box, your your ability to get in goes way up. And foreign students, at least the graduate programs I've taught at, foreign students are usually these interesting, charming, rich kids. And I, I you know, I think it's important that you have foreign students. I do think they add diversity, but that's not what we're letting them in. We're letting them in for money. Mm. And I, I, you know, unfortunately, between legacy, between legacies, between wealthy parents who make donations, and between wealthy foreign students who you've seen get crowded out of the university system or crowded down into lesser schools that are more expensive is good middle-class kids. If you're remarkable, remarkable poor kids actually have a decent shot at going to a great school now. And that's kind of our ointment in academia is we realize we see the evidence of some of the bad things we're doing, but we our, our ointment, if you will, our neosporin, our pain reliever is that we let in some remarkable kids from low-income households. But the reality is the majority of kids aren't remarkable. I wasn't remarkable at 18, were you? Yeah, not even close. Yeah, so, but, and where did you go to school? SUNY Binghamton, State University. Yeah, okay, State University, that's a great right. school. You, you, it wasn't, you did, your family didn't have to go into debt. It wasn't this incredibly tense, big decision where the whole family's hopes and dreams are on your shoulders because they're borrowing against their pension fund to pay for you to go to school. And, you know, my guess is it gave you opportunity season, contacts, skill set to try and figure out what you're going to do with your life. And I, I worry that those opportunities are just going away. It just, you're either, remar- you know, we essentially in the U.S., we've fallen out of love with the unremarkables. We used to love unremarkable people and say, let's give them remarkable opportunities. Go to Stanford, start a company by the time they're 24, raise hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital, scale their company and be billionaires by the time they're 30. And whereas the kind of, the kids who are just average, well, it's the Hunger Games and you either are a celebrity or you die kind of a violent death. Yeah, and, and it, it, I think it's not, I mean, you see it clearly in education. You also see it, I think, in corporate America these days. Yeah, I mean, the phrasing high potential, like what is one of the earliest jobs, you know, like so many talent departments is let's identify the quote high potential people yeah, as soon yep. as we can so we can give them extra attention, extra resources, yeah. extra relationships to the same thing. I mean, when you... When you come out of college, you still have no idea which way is up, and and you know who is high potential and who is not. Even that label, yep. I mean, everyone is high potential yep. <laughs> given adequate attention and resources and nurturing and mentorship. I, I find it really fascinating how that that follows you straight into um, the job world these days, yep. where you're they're trying to identify. And then, just like you said, what about everybody else? Like, does yep. that mean that we're just you know, uh, you know, the other 90% are just subject to live in the gray twilight, you know, for the rest of their, their existence, rather than saying, well, well, what if we all have that thing? And it's like, well, let's just figure out what it is in each of us and sort of like figure out how to get us into the place and, and doing the things that allow it all to come out in whatever way it, it will. Um, yeah. There's, I mean, the idea of, of tenure, though, I want to sort of like revisit. I get and I agree with what you're saying. And yep. at the same time, there's this really interesting thing happening on campuses. Um, yep. Jonathan Hay writes about this in his yeah. last book about the sort of, there is a, a moral thing going mm-hmm. on where it's like, if you speak outside of what is the 
correct line of dogma yep. within especially the institution, yep. you get attacked. You get attacked by by every level within yep. the organization. So, but you need that, like you need to actually have the universities, the colleges, the community yep. colleges be safe places where you can have conversations yep. around these topics that are not necessarily in line with you know, like what that you're supposed to be telling. How do you create that space for the professors to, yep. to be potentially the voices of constructive provocation yep. without that same protection. So it's a great point. The whole, the basis of academia was, or I think it was either Socrates or Plato, was to provoke. And the idea that this provocation created so much controversy, they decided to move it to a safe place, actual land outside of the city where people were encouraged to provoke each other. And that was sort of the basis of the first university. And then those people needed protection and that was tenure. Realistically, and I can see in the humanities or maybe at the law school, I, I still think tenure has even medical research, bioethicists, I can see why you can make a solid argument that they need protection. At the business school, we're not saying anything that controversial. As a matter of fact, in the marketing department, we haven't really said anything in 30 years. There's, there's, we're talking about FASB rule A versus rule B, influencer marketing versus segmentation. I, there's just not a lot of Tenure's gone from, I think, a very noble thing to basically, you know, just overpaid job security. Now, what you're talking about, uh, Professor Hyde is a colleague and is doing amazing work. It goes into this notion that, first off, campuses have become totally intolerant places. They have become not places of free discourse. In almost any room I walk into, I'm considered a progressive and probably left of the median in the room. At NYU, I'm considered this, you know, this crass kind of conservative. Uh, it's just, there's no tolerance for alternative viewpoints right now. And universities are very few. And you see these really, Sam Zell is this billionaire real estate uh, uh, um, business person in Chicago, was disinvited from the UCLA Business School because there was so much controversy over some of the things he's, he'd said about the workplace and his treatment of unions. And the fact that, and, this, and Sam isn't exactly hard right wing. And so the notion that the universities can't tolerate that sort of discourse is really frightening. Um, now, I don't, I don't immediately see the link that professors need tenure. I think it's more of a gestalt. I think it's more of a, I haven't heard anyone get, fi uh, get fired or was saved by tenure. I think this is just a very unfortunate environment, a manifestation of the kind of people that academia approaches. And also the students especially at uh, uh, universities at different coasts, are, have never known any sort of controversy. And they start talking about things like microaggressions and triggers. And these are kids that have developed what I call a princess in the peace syndrome because their entire lives, they've had this concierge bulldozer parenting where their parents make their lives. And I'm, I'm parroting all Jonathan Hyde here, so I, I need to footnote him. But their parents have cleared out every obstacle. So they're physically safer than they've ever been, but they're more emotionally fragile. And as a result, you get kids who come to college and they hear something in the classroom that offends them and they stand up and they shout down the professor or uh, we're seeing record and, you know, Jonathan's whole, his big prediction and, and it's, it's coming to fruition. There was an article on CNN just yesterday. We're seeing record admittances to emergency rooms of kids doing self-harm and attempting suicide. And if you think about anything, you have kids, anything that can take you off track faster, it's something happening to your kid. And we have record levels of teen depression, especially among young girls. 
And it's a combination of this dangerous cocktail of one concierge parenting and bulldozer parenting where kids aren't able to develop any immunities. We've been using so many safe wipes on their lives, they have no immunities. And two, the rise of screens where kids, the number of kids who see teen, their friends every day has been cut in half in the last 10 years. The number of males that are not having sex has tripled under the age of 30. So yeah, less teen pregnancy, less drunk driving, these are all good things, but teen suicide way up, number of people interacting with each other, social skills, preparation. Uh, so there's some very dangerous trends out there, but I'm still someone who believes that tenure for the most part is nothing but a tax on youth. Mm. Yeah. And, and like we said, not an easy problem to solve. Um, but, but on the one hand it is on one, you know, like just cut it. On the other hand, it's not because it's, it's really nuanced. And like you said, the culture is changing and not just the culture on campuses, but the culture of parenting, the culture of family, the culture of technology yep. and how that's literally changing the social dynamic of the way that we exist. And also our openness to conversation with people who don't agree with us yeah. rather than from a, a standpoint of rage and call out from 100%. a standpoint of look, I don't agree with you, yep. but tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what formed your opinion. Yeah. I, I still may not agree with you at the end of this, yeah. but let's let's talk about it because something has brought you to that point in your life and something's brought me to this point in my life and we don't see eye to eye. So let's at least understand what brought us here. Yeah, and, and there's, um, I forget who said this, so I can't credit him, but separating the person from the ideology. Yeah. And I decided a couple of years ago, I mean, as an example, I'm progressive. I go on Fox once a week. And it's because I want to get out of my bubble, and and I don't I don't buy into what they say, and I find myself not physically not liking the people on Fox. I want bad things to happen to Sean Hannity, and I'm not proud to say that. But I don't like the man. I want, and I hope I hope he is not successful. And what I realize is that if you start evaluating people based on their ideologies, you shut off 50% of professional and personal opportunities. You know, just immediately half the people in the world you don't like and aren't going to like you. And so the ability, and when I find it's going on Fox, I go on Cavuto, I go on Stuart Varney. I like them, they're nice people. And we have a more civil argument about our disagreements and we can come together. And you know, there's, I was listening to Mayor Pete, the candidate for the Democratic nomination for president, and he has military services background. And part of the reason I think we're having such trouble and dysfunction and polarization is that there's very few things that we all share in. And it used to be all the elected leaders had military service. And so there was a certain level of camaraderie there. And then when you look at, I, I think the biggest culprit here is that whereas we used to spend five hours a day in front of the television, we're now spending six hours a day in front of a screen and the underlying operating systems of these screens have a business model that literally promotes rage and divisiveness because the key to selling more advertising is more engagement. And the key to more engagement, unfortunately, as a species is we're quite tribal, is rage. So stories on anti-vax get a lot more rage and a lot more clicks. So these very controversial um, topics, topics that get people angry, topics that help identify you as being far left or far right, such that the algorithm can serve you increasingly extreme content to whichever side you belong to. And then you just get more and more outraged and we get more and angry at each other. Yeah, and then you lay it on top of technology, which is designed to promote addiction. <laughs> Yeah, and biomechanical you know, intimate reinforcement, boom, 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 boom. Random rewards. It's sort of like it just triggers, 100%. I must have more of whatever's Feedback. being served to me. Yeah. Are you addicted to a platform? So I'm addicted to a platform. Are you addicted to any of them? I'm old enough to modulate uh, it, but yeah, I know I'm addicted. Uh, yeah, of course. Which one? <laughs> I, you know? I think, well, I mean, like my cell phone. Um, yeah. 
Um, for me, you know, for the most part, I think it's actually probably uh, just texting. Texting, yeah, um, messaging, yeah. But I'm constantly, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like I, I, I'm aware of the problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and I love putting it down and stepping away and you can modulate. Yeah, but, but can modulate. our 14 year old boys modulate? Right, right, because also their brains are being shaped. You That's know, right. like at a time when they are That's interacting right. with these things in a way that we never did. Like yep. by the time we hit this stuff, we were, you know, like, sure, there's neuroplasticity. We keep growing yep. and changing. But fundamentally, our brains are, gonna, are, are not going to be rewired and rewired yep. the way that like kids coming up now who are just living and breathing from the earliest moment. Yeah, on. And we, Nobody knows what the effect of that's going to be. We can say, uh, you know, I'm Scott Galloway and I'm addicted to Twitter. And it's the way my dad, I never understood, both my parents were smokers and ultimately ended up taking my mom's life. And I just never understood this addiction, this hold on our household that smoking had. And my dad said, I used to do it. I was bored and there were friends and it was interesting. And it it was like, every one of them was a friend. It was something to do and it solved the boredom. And it was an immediately kind of immediate, easy rush through what was a fairly mundane life. That's what Twitter is for me. Twitter's my smoking. If I'm bored in any way, I want a quick little hit, a quick little drag. I just pull up Twitter and I see, you know, I see what's happening and I see how people respond. I do it. I, I do it for reaffirmation. I want people to like my stuff, retweet it. I want to hear their comments. But I, that dopamine hit, and it's you know, it's, it's clinically proven. You get it right before you check it as you take it out. It's the anticipation. That's exactly right. So it's yeah, that's my smoking. Uh, yeah. But it's we do circling back to Professor Height. There is an emerging mental health crisis among our teens. It's mm. going to be, and it, it and it you're already starting to see, it's getting pretty serious, and it's actually um, more prevalent among girls because boys bully physically and verbally girls bully relationally. And what these platforms are is they're nuclear weapons for bullying relationally. And not only do you not get invited to the, your, the, the popular girl's birthday party, but you see it play out in real time while you're alone in your room. And it's really damaging and harmful. Yeah. I almost wonder sometimes whether somebody who knows that, that um, the other end of their behavior is, is a person or a group of people who are being bullied, and not invited and not included, then almost willfully overshares in a way that is designed to target that person um, who they know will be watching yeah. afterwards. It's it is kind of terrifying. It's very, <laughs> very different worlds. Like bullying isn't new, but the mechanisms by which it yep. goes out into the world and, yep. and creates harm yep. are changing dramatically. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. The other thing that I think is kind of... um. And again, like neither of us are Luddites. Like we live and right. breathe and, and there's great benefit to technology is the idea of using devices and technology as yep. a way to strip boredom and solitude and contemplation and reflection from our day-to-day existence. I mean, it used to be like you, you were forced just to be bored. You were forced to kind of ponder to daydream, to think about stuff any number of times throughout the day. And there's, there's value to that. There's value to your growth as a yep. human being. There's value to your understanding of the world. Creativity. There's value to your creativity, yep. your cognitive yep. process. It makes us who we are to no small extent. And that is basically being annihilated right now because once we become addicted to whatever is the thing that we become addicted to, it's on us 24 yeah. seven. And we don't have that space anymore. And I, I often wonder what that's taking from us yeah. um, and, and how that, is affecting our ability to go out and live good lives, meaningful lives, spacious lives. Yeah, or even just think about, I don't know, when you were a kid, I came home, my mom was still at work. I came home like 3, 3.30 from school and basically I had three hours alone. There was no activities, not until I was older and I was playing sports. It was kind of cartoons and just boredom, but you know, you invent your own, you invent your own stuff. And now when I think about my kids, how over-programmed they are, my guess is there's upsides and downsides I haven't really thought it through. Yeah, no. 
it's a whole new world for <laughs> for for, ki for kids and parents. Um, let's fill in a couple of gaps. You ended up going to UCLA. Yep. Coming out, what'd you do right after that? I worked at Morgan Stanley uh, for all the wrong reasons. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life professionally. I almost didn't graduate. I was on academic probation five or six times. Um, How do you go, by the way, from graduating with a 2.2 to Morgan Stanley? I lied about my grades. <laughs> um, they didn't check uh, the reason. I had several offers, and the reason I went with Morgan Stanley was I heard they didn't drug test, and they didn't check your transcripts. And uh, so I lied about my grades, uh, got a job, and I wasn't going to graduate. And I literally, when I had, like, at UCLA, I had failed seven classes. And you get credit if you get a D. So I went to a bunch of professors and I asked them to change. I said, look, I have a job at Morgan Stanley. I live at home with my mother. If I don't graduate, I'm going to have to get a job. I got a job installing shelving or I got Morgan Stanley if I can just get out of here and free up a seat for someone more deserving for me. That was literally the pitch. And I went to five professors. I needed another three classes. And I got the same reaction from four or five of them. They look at me, look at me and just discuss, shake their head, and then sign the form and ask me to get out of their office. So I got like a semester's worth of credits in an hour by just going to people I got an F's from. So I got a job at Morgan Stanley because it was the late 80s and investment banking was cool. And I thought I was going to be you know, Richard Gere from Pretty Woman doing deals on the Concord. I had no idea what I was going to be doing. And that's what you did. You, you got a job. I worked my ass off for two years. It was a great training. Didn't like it, but uh, it was, you know, it's just important to figure out what you don't want to do. And I got a great training. I think I got a lot of the skills and discipline that I didn't get at UCLA because I was too immature to appreciate the opportunity I had there. So from there, you ended up going back to grad school after that then? Or? Yeah, I uh, yeah, fell in love with someone and I thought I need to go back to grad school. I don't know what, to, I, most people who go to business school, business school is really for the elite and the aimless. In this economy, if you're good and I you have- that was law school. Yeah. <laughs> that was my you, choice. <laughs> yes. And if you're, if you're smart, ambitious, good pedigree, yeah, you go, but you don't know what you want to do with your life. You go to grad school, or at least you go to business school. Because if you were good at what you, if you're good, have a good undergrad degree, and you know what you want to do, you can just kind of do it. It doesn't. At this point, business school has become so expensive that opportunity costs. It really doesn't make sense to go unless you're yeah, kind of aimless. So I, that fit me perfectly, and so I applied to a bunch of school. I applied to seven schools or nine schools. I got rejected from all of them. It, you know, I got rejected from Indiana. I got rejected. I mean, the long list of schools I got rejected from. And I got into UCLA and Berkeley again. And essentially the same thing. You're, you know, they basically said, you're a fuck up, but you're our fuck up and we'll let you in. And, you know, native son of a, of, of a single mother in California. So, uh, and I fell in love with somebody. Uh, I got off the wait list at University of Texas. And I said, well, I'm going to UT. And she said, well, I'm going to Berkeley. And I said, well, I'm going to Berkeley. So I basically followed, you know, going back to this notion of serendipity. I followed somebody to Berkeley. I didn't really have any desire to go there. And, uh, um, you know, just had, a, again, a wonderful, I got my act together, studied much harder, did really well academically and kind of got, you know, I sort of, if you will, bloomed at like 26 or 27. And now, and this goes back to I think unless you've bloomed by the time you're like 15 in our society, you get set back. And what's unfortunate is your economic trajectory is largely set in your 20s. It's... If you don't come off the flap top at a, a, a slope and you're a jet going pretty fast, pretty hard, you know, it's hard to get your career started at 35. And so it's, it's, 
It's kind of uh, it's it's discouraging how important it is that young people get professional trajectory literally right out of college. And then what is the basis of that slope of their trajectory? The quality of the program they go to. It difference, you know, it's a caste system. Different schools recruit at the Ivy Leagues than they do at junior colleges. It's just a different life, different right. opportunities, different income, everything. But I mean, I, I mean. I guess the question is what what is the metric by which you're measuring success with that? You know, point. Is it is it how much you're gonna earn over the course of your lifetime? Yep. Is it the power and the prestige that you get? Yep. Because what I don't see, what I, I and I've seen all the data that supports yep. that. Yep. But what I don't see is the data that actually supports that that same trajectory um is either set in your twenties or will follow measuring the metrics of meaningfulness, yep. um, purpose, yep. genuine happiness, um yep. and all these other things. And I feel like there's this real Reevaluation of yeah. what are the metrics by which we measure success in our lives. I mean, um, David Brooks, I guess, has a like this new book out that the yeah. Double Mountain, whatever he calls it, about how many people are actually dropping into this space and saying, "Okay, so this has been the first mountain." Yeah, you know, we used to call that the midlife crisis. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of people are being much more intentional about that mm. um, and just kind of revisiting. Yes, these decisions early on may take me down this path. Yeah, but I've seen what that looks like a lot earlier these yeah. days. And I'm not so sure that's what I want from life. I think that's a really fair point. So uh, first off, there's some bias here, environmental bias, because at the business school, I'm just surrounded by capitalists and uber capitalists, and we're very focused on economic security um, or economic prosperity. And the data is, so what is the relationship between money equals, you know, money, it does, does, does money equal happiness? And the majority of the research shows there is a correlation between money and happiness, but it tops out. And that is the difference between making $25,000 a year and struggling economically and feeling food insecure and worrying about your kids and worrying about whether your parents can have access to good health care, you're less happy. But once you get to a certain point of decent housing, uh, the ability to get your kids an education, to go to Disneyland once a year, feeling as if you could absorb an economic shock and it wouldn't ruin you, being able to buy kind of some nice stuff, maybe some indulgence every once in a while, which by the way, is probably about $80,000 a year household income in St. Louis and about 600,000 here in Manhattan. So a lot of it's a function where you are, but there is a relationship. There is a correlation between money and happiness. But once you get to that point, it flatlines. Now, a lot of people say billionaires are less happy than millionaires. That's a myth too. They're not any more happy, but they're not any less happy. It just flatlines. And what's difficult to do, and I think a lot of us lose the script around, is once we get to a certain level of economic success or security, having the self-awareness to get off the hamster wheel and say, well, more money won't necessarily lead to more happiness. So what are the things that drive my happiness? And should I start investing in those things now? Because when you're on the hamster wheel for 10, 20, 30 years, and I tell my kids, yeah, you do need to pursue economic success. It, I, I can... I can with relative certainty tell you that the difference between making $40,000 a year and two or $300,000 a year in the tri-state area, you will be happier uh, if you versus just sticking at 40. But it's important to be mindful of once, if you're fortunate enough to get to that point, what are the things that drive happiness out of, you know, just pure, pure economics. And a lot of people don't do it. Uh, and, and I'm sure you know this, it all comes back to one thing, the you know, all the studies show the same thing. The Harvard Grant study, the largest, film this largest longitudinal study of, in history on happiness. It all comes back to the same thing, and that is the depth and number of meaningful relationships. Yeah. Love, full stop. That, that's uh, 
The greatest first line of any academic study ever, and what you're referring to is this study done over 80 years, survived three principal scientists because they all started dying. And then the last principal scientist was charged with summarizing this 80-year study in the best first sentence ever in an academic study, happiness is love full stop. Do you at work feel respected and admired? And not only that, do you respect and admire other people? Do you at home feel loved and uh, feel a sense um, feel a, a sense of mutual support? And do they feel love from you and mutual support? And then among your friends, do you feel a sense of camaraderie and joy? And do they get a sense of camaraderie and joy from you? And the interesting thing was not only feeling it, but feeling a sense that you're providing it to other people, that that's exceptionally important to happiness and longevity, actually. That's the caregivers that live longer. But that is, and it's hard to remember, okay, you develop economic success such that you can facilitate and lubricate the relationships because it's upsetting to have to not be able to provide for yourself and your children. It's upsetting not to be able to help your parents. It's upsetting not to be able to live where you want to live. It's upsetting to have economic st stress. It's the number one source of divorce is, is not infidelity. It's uh, or religion or not getting along. It's financial stress. Uh, but having the mindfulness to at some point get off the hamster wheel and say, okay, what makes me happy? Yeah. And, and also, I mean, building on what you were saying about money and sort of having a threshold, you know, looking at one side of the equation is how much we earn. Um, the yep. other side is how we spend it. And this 100%. is something that you talk about and you write about as well. And there's actually you know, great research on it. It's, yeah. it's the experiences. It's not the stuff. You've also shared a story that I think on the surface of it isn't sort of doesn't have a linear relationship to how much you've earned, yep. um, but it really is underneath it, which is your ability to be with your mom in her yep. final months. Yep. Uh, so th thanks for bringing that up. And you touched on a bunch of stuff. And so just segueing into the book, I have a series of equations that I review in the last session of my class, which, you know, is a brand strategy class at a business school. So none of this, all of this is obtuse and not anything anyone asked me to do, but the, this session is well-received. And I try to distill a bunch of these things down to a, a basic set of equations. And you mentioned three of them. One is people constantly overestimate the amount of happiness they'll get from things and underestimate the amount of happiness they'll get from experiences. So the, the learning there is basic, you know, buy, drive a Hyundai and take your, you know, take your wife to Africa, right? Um, the definition of rich is passive income that's greater than your burn. So young people focus on their income, adults, smart people focus on their burn because I would say my father's rich. My father between social security from him and his wife and his pension from the Royal Navy is $48,000 a year and they spend 40, they spend no money and he's rich. I have, and I'm not exaggerating, I have a half a dozen to a dozen friends here in New York who make between one and $3 million a year as, as managing directors, investment banks, partners at law firms, and between an ex-wife, child support, home in the Hamptons, three kids at Grace Church, they spend all of it, sometimes even a little bit more. And I'm telling you, these guys can literally, I'm sure they wake up at, in the middle of the night in a sweat. You know, what happens if I lose my job? What happens? They're poor. So, you know, the focus on the burn and getting to that right equation is hugely important. And then the last thing you mentioned and I want to acknowledge I was in a position to do this because I had some money. I worked for NYU, which was incredibly flexible and generous with me. But when my mom got sick, you know, it was just me and my mom growing up. It was literally just me and her against the world. I thought, okay, I'm going to do this right. And I took a leave of absence from NYU. And I moved in with her at the seniors community in Summerlin, Nevada, which was its own set of experiences. 
and decided I was going to really go kind of all in on making my mom's departure nice, just as she had made my entry into the world pretty nice. And there's a lot of research on how rewarding it is, or I would say instinctively fulfilling to raise children, but there isn't a lot of research on how rewarding it is to take care of your parents or contribute to your parents at the end of life. And again, I want to recognize that a lot of people aren't in a position to do that. They have no kids, their own economic needs. But for me, it was, it's something that I, you know, uh, I feel like I'm totally virtue signaling right now, but it was very rewarding. And it was a very strange time in my life because during the day I was managing my mom's health care. She decided she wanted to die at home, which had its own series of complexities and not be in a hospital. And two, uh, at night, I would go downtown to the strip, get shitty drunk and party with, you know, entrepreneurs and strippers. So my day and my nights were, it was a very strange time in my life. But, uh, you know, something, there's a sitcom in there somewhere, but it was very rewarding to be that involved in my my mom's uh, last six months. Yeah. Were there any, I mean, during that whole window of time, were there any moments or awakenings or conversations that just stand out as really defining how important it was for both you and her to have that that time in that way together? You know, it, it, the, I've always thought that if when people, are your parents still around? Yeah. So when your parents go, if they go slowly, it's tough on them and it's good for you because nothing goes unsaid. I mean, I remember, I remember like, I used to just sit next to my mom sometimes and I would get upset and I would tell her how upset I was that she was dying. And it like, it made her feel better that someone was, her son was just so upset. You know, I know mean, that sounds r- ridiculous. And she used to, you know, when we go over, she would leave for me her her will and she'd constantly write post-its on this legal document saying, you know, you, you are like the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And I still have it. The love you feel with your, your kids and your parents, if for whatever reason, you're in a position where the situation catalyzes communicating that, it's just incredibly rewarding. And, you know, those moments, that is when you become immortal. That's when like, okay, I'm a blink on the cosmic, you know, eyelash, but this blink matters, right? Because the world wants to prosper, the species wants to evolve. And in order to do that, it takes the most important actions and it makes them the most rewarding, right? So food, sex, camaraderie, cooperation, all these things are the most rewarding things. And the secret to the species is people having an irrational passion and love for one another. And so when you when you have those moments where you can communicate that, I mean, it is the most rewarding thing. And I hadn't, I didn't have the ability to communicate that. And my mother didn't really either. She's European. We weren't very emotive. Um, so that was that was sort of a blessing and and very rewarding moments. Yeah, you mentioned at the same time you were like living this dual life. I know you eventually eventually married the woman that you went to Berkeley with. Yeah, that didn't work out. Um, yeah, and you went into this window. Of, yeah, it sounds like you know intense professional success and simultaneously um, personal chaos. <laughs> yeah, it was, but it, it was chaos of my own making. I yeah. almost feel, I'm not sure chaos, right? I became an island. I just, I was working in San Francisco, working around the clock in internet companies, pursuing money, pursuing kind of fame or fabulousness in tech, in a, in a relationship primarily because I met a woman in college and 
we found love and, and went to business school together and we had a nice relationship, but I didn't like San Francisco. I didn't like the internet. I didn't like e-commerce. I didn't like myself. I didn't like being married. And I just decided to press reset. And I was in a position to do that because I had some money. And also a lot of it was selfish and a lack of character. I used to come to New York and see men in their young 30s with some money and think, who are single. I think, I want that life. I want that life. I was just very selfish. And we didn't have kids. So it was like a bad breakup. It was like an expensive breakup, not a divorce. And moved out back here and decided to pursue, you know, changed my life dramatically, resigned from the board of uh, the company I'd started and joined the faculty at NYU where I've been, you know, teaching for 17 or 18 years. But yeah, and it's strange. I just became an island. I didn't want friend. I didn't want to stay in touch with my friends. I didn't, my mom was gone. So I didn't have any family. And I just became literally like a, you know, a caveman who would occasionally leave for food or sex. I mean, that was it. And I would just stay in my apartment and do a little bit of work, have kind of pretend jobs, advising hedge funds. And it's like a survival. And I did it for a few years and it's like a survival instinct kicked in. Cause if you want to die as a male, just be alone. You stop eating as well. You don't have much human contact. I'm naturally an introvert and a bit, uh, uh, you know, fine on my own. But something kicks in and it kicked in and said, like, if I don't start reestablishing some relationships, getting more engaged, you're going to, you know, in the science here, men die when they're alone. <laughs> they need, women are better at creating social contacts and creating social connective tissue. You know, it's very easy for a guy just to kind of, uh, you know, uh, go into a cave and just slowly but surely the brain says, all right, you're no longer adding value. You're no longer hunting prey. You're no longer part of the clan. You're no longer caring for anybody. And it stops sending out that, that hormone that clears out the bad cholesterol. So when, when um, I met my uh, you know, second wife and it was when my mom was sick, part of it was there's certain rules I think you gotta maintain when you're taking care of a sick parent. You gotta have a, a life of your own. I used to leave every weekend. You know, because the unfortunate thing about death is he never or she never shows up when they're supposed to. So it was like, oh, this is it, you know, and then I would leave and I'd say, no, I got to leave. And this, that happened like six or seven times. This was this was the last week and it wasn't. But I met, yeah, in that time on one of those weekends I met uh, who would ultimately uh, be my wife and uh, the mother of my kids. What was your mom's passing? Did that, do you feel like that played a role in your sort of reevaluation and openness to stepping back into a relationship and sort of reclaiming a different value set? You know, I, I think everybody goes through this stuff when they lose somebody. I think the harshness and finite nature of life hits you. And it's, it goes back to the book. So happiness, there is an arc of happiness and it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, is it a smile? Yeah, it's a smile. You know, kid, your, your youth is college football, exploration of the drugs and relationships spilling into adulthood. It's a ton of and beer. It's just a ton of fun, right? And then you hit your mid-20s and maybe you figure out you're not going to be a senator or have a fragrance named after you. Uh, you don't maybe live up to the professional success that right away that you'd hope for, maybe your parents convinced you you were going to have. And I think more than anything, um, somebody you know and love gets sick and dies. I think that, at least for me, was like the first time I'm like, wow, life is harsh and it's finite. And for me, it's um, it's kind of resulted in a heavy, some people get religious spirituality. I found atheism, which for me has been incredibly motivating because I think a finite sense of the nature of life is very motivating to invest in relationships today and tell people things and 
um, I think I, I'd like to think I've become not only a happier person, but a better person. And, you know, some people get on, it also can have a kind of a negative attribute on you. When my, my mom died, and I think a lot of people experience this when they lose a parent, they get stuck. You know, they don't quite snap out of it. It's sort of like you're supposed to mourn for like, uh, you know, one of the algorithms I have is, or one of these equations is the key to success is your ability to mourn and move on. Everybody knows tragedy, everybody gets fired, everybody has economic stress, but your ability to process it and then move on is a key component of success. It's like that great Adam Grant, or is it Adam Grant or somebody talks about, here's what people think the line of success looks like, and it's just a straight 45 archive. It's not, it's a bunch of scribbles in different directions. But for me, the, the harshness and loss of my only family member was really devastating, and it took me too long to recover from it. And I realized two to three years into it that I still wasn't over it and that I needed I needed help. I needed to speak to other people who were mourning and I needed to kind of just snap out of it and engage with other people. Um, but I think that moment, I think that moment happened. Everybody faces tragedy. So I don't think there was anything that unique about my tragedy or about losing my mom. Everybody loses their parents. But for me, it was like, it was very, uh, the seminal moment in, in my life as right. I'm sure it is for a lot of people. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You mentioned uh, um, atheism also as a driver for um, examining and really embracing the here and now, which is interesting because I think um, it, it can cut either way. You know, yep. It can either cut towards that or it can cut towards almost like nihilism um, yeah. and, and basically saying, why? Like, why bother? <laughs> there is no retribution. There is no judgment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the, the atheism, you know, I prescribe to is a tremendous respect for other people's beliefs 
uh, and uh, w- because that's kind of the basis to respect for non-believers, right? I also think there's a lot of closeted atheists out there. And I was- Not so closeted. I mean, it's the fastest growing group. Fastest growing right group, yeah. yeah. It's like kind of independence, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I think that, and I think about this with my kids a lot, I think when I'm near the end, there's going to be a point where I look into my kids' eyes and know it's the last time I'm going to look at their look at them and that our relationship's coming to an end. And that's profoundly sad, but it's also really motivating. I think I go to Little League more now. I, this, this is it. You know, I think this kind of notion that, all right, you know, get up and dance and tell people you admire them. And, and you know, I think that's, a, and, and, you know, order the good one. I think, that, you know, I think that's a, I think it's a healthy way to live your life and not be too short-term, too selfish or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to think that it's been a positive attribute. I, I didn't know that. It's the fastest growing yeah. religion. To the, the nuns, the non-affiliated. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically people. And, and even, and those are not necessarily atheists actually, but those may include people who in some way, shape or form consider themselves spiritual, but don't adhere to any religious affiliation or path yeah. or dogmatic uh, scriptures. Um but they are, you know, they're they're somehow connected to the greater consciousness. Um, the force, which is interesting, because guys like <laughs> Sam Harris, you know, yeah. about atheist, also yeah. would consider himself like probably in that group. Like there, he, there's a sense of connectedness to something larger and and, and yeah. respect for consciousness. But it 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 is interesting um, how that choice affects people. I sometimes wonder whether adherence to more of a traditional uh, or religious tradition leads to me, you know, so, and again, a, a lot of the behavior change that, that yeah. gets affected by that is, well, if I'm going to be judged after this, then I need to live a moral life. Yeah, I need to do better. And I wonder if it actually, yeah. it leads to more potentially moral decisions, but not necessarily decisions that would lead you to engage more fully in relationships in the moment and being fully present and engaged in whatever you're doing, because that's not necessarily what's prescribed by, in fact, it's almost sometimes the exact opposite. You know, yeah. it's about, it's about your just rewards coming. Moral constraint um, code. for society to exist, yeah. you know. Yeah, we do need a code. Way. I never used to bind a marriage. Now I think it's probably a good thing because you'd Without marriage, you probably bail, and and sticking with it is a good thing over the long term. The happiest people are, tend to be ones who are in, who are married with, who are married with kids. But I find, and it kind of goes to, I've been thinking a lot about masculinity lately, and I find that uh, I found, or my observations, that the things that defined I got. I think masculinity, and I imagine embracing your gender. Uh, I think just embracing your gender is very rewarding. And as 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 an American male, I think more about masculinity because I can relate to it more, obviously. And I found that the things that drove kind of the vines you swung on as a young man, you know, being kind of more professionally successful, kind of generally being awesome, being ripped. I used to work out a lot. I was a you know marginal athlete in college, and then I used to go to the gym not to be healthy, but to just be fucking huge, right? and be ripped and just to be generally like a better partier than anybody, more outrageous, more fun. All those things made me feel manly and I got a lot of reward out of it. And then as you get older as a man, some kind of other things start, some other vines start popping up, being a good neighbor. You know, you, you like to think you do it for the right reasons, but it also makes you feel important. Uh, it makes you feel like you're kind of, it, ma- it makes me feel masculine. Uh, I think taking interest in the well-being of a child that isn't yours is shows that you're, 
you know, you're Simba, you're a lion that's like caring, you're so strong and so good and so talented that you have the bandwidth and the capability to start helping other people. Voting makes me feel strong like bull. Uh, you know, just these masculinity, hopefully over time, begins to evolve. And one of the things I talk about in my book is, you know, it's the difference, I think, between being a boy and a man is what are these, how can you embrace masculinity, but the right type of masculinity? And yeah, I, I think that last part is really key. <laughs> yeah. Because what we're seeing is the swing of the pendulum all the way to the other side for a long time. But now I think at least there's a real so say more what you, say more what you mean by that meaning what you know would be labeled these days toxic masculinity yeah um well which right now unfortunately is in my view is considered all masculine i think toxic and masculinity have become redundant mm. which i think is dangerous i think there is a i think there is a positive form of masculinity and i think you know we're not good we're not a we're not a society that's good at, at capturing the pendulum at the bottom at the middle it doesn't exist <laughs> <laughs> so it's you it's like you can never see it but there's a lot of really interesting conversations, I think, around what it means to be masculine. And almost all of them immediately connote something, a negative reaction. Yeah. I mean, what I'm, what I'm excited about is that it seems like those conversations are happening and they're happening in a more open way. Mm -hmm. And they're also, they're happening between people of different genders. Do you think they're happening? I'm curious, and I'm, I am, I'm asking to learn not to make yeah. a statement here, but do you really think they're happening because my sense is I, I go on I do a lot of these podcasts I go on TV a lot I'm, I'm supposed to go on MSNBC on Wednesday and talk about toxic masculinity and the thing I regret is that I think it's difficult to have an open conversation about it in a public format because if you don't sort of pile on and take on what I would call a very very progressive slash left view of it that as a heterosexual white male, I'm sort of already kind of guilty and I need to acknowledge my shortcomings, that unless you go that way, there's like a one in 10 chance you're going to say something stupid and your career is going to be fucked. Yeah. Okay. So three <laughs> things. One, MSNBC. So, you, so the right. minute you try and have this conversation through a mass media outlet, yeah. it can't be the way it needs to be had. Yeah. Public. Because right. it's so short, it's so a talking point. Well, and, and also because what did you say earlier? Like what gets aired on those things? Mm -hmm. The only thing that, that actually gets aired on mainstream media is stuff that is highly polarizing and, and soundbite. Yeah, sensationalist, yeah. Right, so it's gotta be short, which means there's no room for nuance, right? right? And it's yeah. gotta be polarizing. Yeah. And that, because that draws eyeballs, sadly, that's the yeah, way our brains yeah, are wired. 100%. Yeah. So do I think these conversations are being had and can be had in a, in a genuine and constructive and nuanced way? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do I think that they're happening that way on Twitter, on mainstream media, even on some conversations and some more alternative forms of media? Not a whole lot. You yeah. know? But what I do see is is in in more private forums, in private conversations, mm -hmm. in small groups, in mm -hmm. dinner conversations, that the question is being raised mm -hmm. in a way where it's more genuine and where people aren't showing up with the intention of being dug in yep. and trying to just force the other person to adopt their point of view. But yep. I, th I think my sense is that a lot of people's heads are spinning right now because we were raised in a culture that taught us, this is the way that you are, this yep. is the way the other person is, and this is the way you behave towards each other. And what we're now seeing is that all the assumptions, you know, like mm -hmm. the, the socially appropriate assumptions Mm -hmm. about the way to behave in the world and the way that we step into our gender identity um, are just what we were taught. They're not necessarily the way that it, it, 
that leads to the best experience of life and the most respectful relationships and the greatest amount of human flourishing. And yet we're, we're struggling and I'm raising my hand right now, right? I'm mm -hmm. probably just telling you what's on my mind mm -hmm. because I, I was taught as a kid, what was quote respectable, Yep. you know, and now what I'm learning as an adult is that the things that I have been doing my whole life, mm -hmm. if it's as simple as holding a door for somebody, whether I, it's regardless of gender, regardless mm -hmm. of age, that I was just taught you hold doors for other people. Mm -hmm. And what I'm learning now is that that, that is, is sometimes seen as an affront. Yeah. You know, and, and then it gets, you know, that is sort of like the simplest expression. But my sense is that um, there's a lot more awareness that we don't actually know what is the choice or the action to take, which is respectful of other human beings. And mm -hmm. because of that confusion, in a private way, in a safe space, we're more open to having those conversations. At least I think people who identify as male are more mm -hmm. open to having those conversations. My sense mm -hmm. is that um, most others have been more open to those conversations for a long time. But I think in particular, people who have sort of adopted a, a hyper-masculine um, male identity have mm -hmm. not been open to that conversation. And the nature of what's going on, like in our culture, it's kind of really forcing you to re-examine a lot of your assumptions that took you to this place in life, at least for me, you know? And sometimes it's, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I want to, I want to move into the world and be kind. Like that is about my, like my ultimate goal within right. in the conscience of others. Right. I just want to be kind. Yeah. And the confusion comes when I don't necessarily understand what that means from a behavioral standpoint. And I think that's leading to some interesting pain, but also conversation in the right place in the right way. Yeah, and there's, unfortunately there's no calibration. So we've conflated what I would argue, or the media has, uh, criminal behavior. Some of the behavior that has taken place in professional settings is not even, it's not even inappropriate. It's not a moral, it's criminal. And then there's, and then you hear, uh, but it's all, and then you hear about other things where there's some, what's going on with Joe Biden. And it's all conflated. It's all part of the same sort of toxic, quote unquote, toxic masculinity. And I don't, I quite frankly, I don't, I don't buy that you are questioning whether the open door, you know, deep down opening a door for a woman, I think, I think that's a hundred percent fine. And if someone says to you, you know what, I was raised where that is in some ways uh, intimating or communicating, I'm not as strong or as worthy, please stop doing it. You would say, fine, but don't shame me. <laughs> I mean, I don't take, take the, it's like Jonathan Knight. He says the gestures should be received with the intention they were given. Right, but the intention of the receiver yep. is that you've just offended me or you've just diminished me sure. um, in the context of our, our relevant, your know, relative power. And, or if you make an assumption about yep. the, the, the gender identity of that other person and that then causes you to behave a certain sure. way. And that's, then, why, that's where I'm saying, I am genuinely in, yep. a, in a space where I am just re-examining everything. But we're, we're in a situation though, where if you're going to hold doors open for people, let's assume you're going to offend some people, you're going to screw up every once in a while and do it in the wrong situation. I think it's still worth the risk. It's still worth the risk because when we move to this general neutral society where anything can be a microaggression or a trigger, we stop being almost like human. It's like we're trying to sand off all the rough edges that make us works of art as opposed to just balls that all look like ball bearings. And there's some stuff that, you know, obviously use your common sense. Don't ever physically intimidate somebody. Don't, 
you know, I, I, I occasionally I, I'd shake some guy's hand and it's like he's literally trying to like rip my hand off. I'm like, dude, dude, what's going on here? But it, it's an interesting conversation. I would argue it's just starting to be a conversation. It's mostly been, I don't want to call it revenge, but I think women have had to navigate such bullshit for so long in the workspace that finally that they have voice, finally they have some power. Uh, I also think there's some other dynamics going on. I think the mainstream media is in the business of shaming people because there's effectively what I would call a soft revolution going on with the middle class has just gotten the crap kicked out of it so badly for 30 years that they are now going after people they perceive as wealthy and powerful and shaming them, that there's a there's an industry in that. Um, and the majority of people watching ad-supported media now are from the lower middle class because advertising has become a tax that only the poor, the technologically literate have to pay. So you have these entities that are basically in the business of kind of what I'll call, you know, shaming traditionally powerful co cohorts. And it doesn't, I don't think it leads to a productive conversation. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I, I think I would agree that I, th I feel like we're in the very beginnings of this. Um, You're in the, you think we're in the second inning? If that. Yeah. <laughs> if that. But what, it, what I do believe is that um, even if the conversations aren't happening in the way that I think are the most constructive way right now, mm -hmm. the fact that they have begun and they're starting to broaden, mm -hmm. I feel like at some point, like we'll find our way to more constructive shape. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how long it's going to take, mm -hmm. um, but I feel like, you know, at, at least the game has begun in a, in a better way. So we'll see where it all leads to. Circling kind of coming full circle. So you're, you're in New York now, you're married, you got a couple of kids. Yep. Um, and teaching at NYU, still doing some business consulting. Yep. Um, when you think about as, as a partner in life, as, mm -hmm. as a parent, mm -hmm. um, the world that you want to live in and also um, on some level create for mm -hmm. your kids to mm -hmm. live into, mm -hmm. what do you feel is sort of the most important elements? You know, a lot of what you said really resonates. How do you give your sense, how do you give your kids this chocolate and peanut butter of grit and drive and competitiveness and wanting? I, I do believe in a capitalism that inherently involves winners and losers. I think people who are better, work harder, take more risk should get more. At the same time, how do you, how do you ensure they develop a really strong sense of empathy and kindness? And there's so many things that are that are set against them. I went to public schools. I had rich friends. I had poor friends, and we're just all better off for it. You know, we all saw, we all empathized. I, I aspired to be more like my rich friends, and I saw they were going to great schools, and I thought, well, they're not any smarter than me. I can go to a great school. And at the same time, um, one of my closest friends was a, a black kid named Ronnie Drake, who was middle linebacker, and his only way out was athletics. That was his only way out. That's the only way he was going to college. And I think I'd like to think I developed a, a, a sense of empathy uh, for kind of his upbringing and the obstacles he had to overcome. So how do you, those are the two things you want. I want hungry, hungry kids, you know, focused on evolutionary progress, wanting to be better than their, their parents, competitive, um, you know, and at the same time, I want, you want really empathetic, kind kids. And I don't, sometimes those two are in, and, um, are in direct opposition with each other, but I'd say that, you know, grit and empathy. Yeah. Is that also the reason why you devote the last class in your, um, you know, like business grad school course, um, 
and an entire book now to sort of zoom, zooming the lens out from business and saying, can we talk about life for a moment? Yeah. So it's, 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 I mean, quite frankly, it's sort of a commercial uh, process. The I've only, this is my second bu- book and my process for coming up with books is pretty straightforward. I do a class. So I did a class on the four platforms, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. It was the most popular class. I then did a video on it. The video got a million views. Okay, I can turn this into a book. It's sort of like my screening, my test, my Petri dish, if you will. And then the last class, The Algebra of Happiness, did a video, got 2 million views. Okay, so this is what I'm going to do as a second book. I'm not trying to, I, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to make the world a better place. I'm not even trying to make them better people. I'm trying to respond to the fact that kids initially think, when I say kids, the average age is 27. They come to business school because they want to develop the currency for economic success and economic opportunities, mostly a professional. But what they're really coming from, at least that's what I think they think they're coming from, what they're really coming for is they want to be happy and they want to develop a narrative of satisfaction in their life. And in a capitalist society, professional success is usually a pillar of that. So we kind of cut to the cut to the chase, cut to the ending of the movie. What is, let's assume most of you are going to achieve some level of economic success. The average salary coming out of NYU Stern School of Business is $112,000. So if you're just average at 27, you're making $112,000. So that may not, these kids have much greater ambitions than that. That's a lot of money on any relative scale. That's a lot. Even in New York, that's not a bad, bad living, right? So then the question becomes, okay, why are you really here? You're here because you want, imagine your last 10 minutes, 10 months, 10 years of your life. And you look back on the arc and the narrative that is your life. How are you going to feel about it? And how do you make the investments now and develop a code now such that, when those last 10 minutes, 10 years pop up and they're going to be here. The one thing I'm 100% certain of, it's going to go faster than you think. I mean, you remember, I, I literally remember getting out of college. I remember moments and I just blinked and it's now. I just can't get over it. So I say to these kids, what are the things you could do? What is the code? What are the algorithms? What are the equations you could start following now that increase the likelihood that when you're at that point, you're going to look back and think, okay, I didn't check every box, but I, I had my pen out and I feel pretty good about what's happened. Man, which feels like actually a really good place for us to sort of uh, start to come full circle. So hanging out in here in the context of this podcast called Good Life Project. Yep. If I offer out the phrase to live a good life, yep. what comes up? To live a good life is, uh, I think, is to feel like you have, uh, and it goes back to the grant study. I don't think anyone at anyone's funeral says he was too kind, he was too generous. I think it's impossible. I don't think anyone ever complains. You got to take care of yourself. You got to fix your own oxygen mask before you fix other people, be successful. But no one ever complains that this person was too generous and too kind. And you want to put yourself, I think business school should put yourself in a position economically to do that for yourself, such that your ga- your oxygen mask is fixed, so then you can start affixing masks to other people and lead a rewarding life full of all those, you know, as you said, happiness is love full stop. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.